Happy New Year, as you've sure greeted each other already. Take your Bibles, turn with me again to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, page 954, if you're using our Bibles here. Colossians 1, we're looking today at verses 18, 18 through 20. Did you ever have a job where the line of authority was unclear? Someone above you tells you something to do, and you begin to do it, and then somebody else who is somehow still also your senior tells you to do something else, and now you're kind of like in this tension, what do I do? This person says this, this person says that, what do I do? Eventually, and ideally, to solve that kind of thing, you have to keep pushing these decisions up the chain to the top guy or the top woman or the board or the CEO or the owner or somebody who has ultimate authority. The same thing happens, I think, in the Christian world. Christians face the dilemma that um, they're following the teaching or the ideas spiritually that they're hearing here and then there's somebody else they like another radio program or somebody they're reading or a book and it's different and they both sound authoritative but they don't agree so so what do we do who is your ceo how do you how do you resolve where you should go, what you should do, what is truth, what is right, what is wrong. What is your ultimate authority? I think our passage today answers that. Let's pick it up in verse 18, where we are in the midst of a, uh, really the high point of the book of Colossians that is exalting the person of Jesus Christ. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now we know. The supremacy, the top position, belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus is in charge And his leadership is given to us in this metaphor. He is the head of the body, the church. So it's not quite a corporate metaphor. It's something far more personal than that. It's a person is the illustration. A body has a head. The head leads the body. When you meet someone or know of someone that has a particular skill... No matter what the abilities of that person in the rest of their body, you really do give credit to the brain that somehow is producing and coordinating and controlling this amazing ability. And likewise, if someone is ever injured, the injuries you worry about the most are usually head injuries because the head controls the body. The head's in charge. Christ is the head of the body. The church, he's in charge, he directs, he controls, he sets the vision, he empowers. It's all under his supremacy is what it's saying. He's the head of the body, and then he says, the church. We're introduced to this term, church. 
What did Paul mean by church? Well, a couple things we know he didn't mean. We most commonly in our culture, a church means a what? A building. I'm going to that building, the church. And clearly, Paul did not mean buildings. There were no church buildings in the first century. In fact, you don't really find any historically until probably the third century that there are buildings meant just for church worship. The church of Colossae met at the home of a man named Philemon. If you recognize that little book, Philemon 2 talks about the church in there in his house, and Philemon was part of the Colossian church. So if the church is not a building, was Paul simply saying that, the, uh, that Christ is the head of the Colossian church? Well, he was, but it's broader than that because he says the same essential thing in Ephesians 1.20, that Christ is the head of the body, the church, and that's in Ephesus, a different city. So let's just kind of nail down what Paul must mean by church and what the Bible means by the term church. First of all, as we said, church is never a building in the Bible. Secondly, the church is not found in the Old Testament. It's just a New Testament entity. So there were believers in the Old Testament, but the believers are not called the church. The church is something new, and that will become a theme in the book of Colossians as well, the new, the, the, the new mystery that's revealed, the church. It's a New Testament thing. So how is church used in the Bible? It's first of all used as a universal sense, in a universal sense, though the word universal is not found in Scripture. When Paul talks about the body, the church, he's referring to all believers in Christ since the day of Pentecost. There really is a starting and a stopping point of what uh, the New Testament calls church. The starting point is the day of Pentecost, Acts 10. Pentecost 5 is 50 days in the Jewish calendar, 50 days after first fruits, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. He was fulfilling Old Testament feast imagery in the sequence But since the day of Pentecost, all believers now have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came to indwell. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. It happens now. And so Romans 8 and 9 says that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't even belong to Christ. Meaning, if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. Believers are therefore joined to Christ and to each other in the body because they have the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So it is, it is very clear that the body is one and all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God dwelling. In fact, the presence of the Spirit is really what defines church in the New Testament. That's what made it different. And this entity, the church, will continue until actually the church is raptured 1 Thessalonians 4, and and all believers are gathered up and are taken to heaven. That's the ending point. The Pentecost is the beginning. Rapture is the conclusion. The church is one because of the indwelling presence. If you have the Spirit, and you have the Spirit, and you have the Spirit, and I have the Spirit, that's what joins us together. Just as in a physical body, there's one you know, circulatory system or, or a nervous system and bone structure. There's just one, and it keeps the whole body together as one. So the the universal church is how Paul is using it here. However, the word church in the New Testament sometimes 
refers to biblically organized groups of believers who meet weekly to worship and follow Christ. So those are believers, organized biblically, leadership. There's, 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 a, there's a description of what a church must be, but it's believers who actually meet together. So Open Door Bible Church is a local church, which is part of the universal church. This church and the church, there is obviously the same. In fact, the only way that believers meet is at local churches. The universal church will not meet until eternity. Then we will all be gathered together. So the only way that the universal church really is visibly known is through a local church. We know that there is a corporate Walmart somewhere in Arkansas. We probably haven't, none of us have probably been there. The only way we know Walmart is by going down here to Sockville or or wherever. And the only way people will know about the body of Christ is if they are part of a local church. Church universal, church local. Christ is the head of the body. What does that mean? It means we belong to him and therefore we must obey and follow him. The body does what the head tells it to do. When someone, some part of our body loses its ability to communicate with the brain, we call that a disability. And if as individuals or as a church family, we are no longer responding to the instructions and directions of Jesus Christ. We are functionally disabled. Glance ahead to chapter 2 in Colossians. I'm going to read verses 2, 18, and 19, which describe an example in this church of disconnection from Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. So there's, whatever that is, it's some kind of strange teaching. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So there's this false, strange teaching, verse 19, He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. So there is some know-it-all or know-it-alls who are teaching this strange doctrine that impresses and draws people. Where did they go wrong, these teachers? They were disconnected from the head. Are you connected clearly to the head. If you're not, you can fall prey to some kind of false doctrine. You'll hear this idea, and it sounds authoritative, or she says this, and and we can become disconnected and fall prey. God's plan for keeping us safe and right and true doctrinally is to keep us connected to him, which he does through his body, and the only way the body functions is through a local church. So being connected to a local church is God's plan for keeping us on the right track. And so we need a close connection to Christ, and he works through his body, universal, the church, local. You might say, but well, what if there's a church that is not connected to Christ, not following Christ? Well, trust the head to be able to handle that. Revelation 7 John reveals the words of Jesus to seven specific churches. And repeatedly he warns that if this church does not 
continue to teach the truth. They fall to these false teachings or they don't repent of certain sins. He says, I'll snuff them out. And through the history of the church since Acts 2, God has set down and snuffed out a lot of churches. There are no seven churches in Asia Minor that were there in the first century. And so God may lay aside and shuffle the deck of local churches, but the church will continue, and God will always raise up those who will follow him. So are you connected to Christ? Yes, you are if you put your faith in Christ. In that, in that positional sense, you are connected. That puts it on us to make sure that we are connected in practice. It is the means by which, chapter 2, verse 19... We will grow as God causes it to grow. Your spiritual strength and growth depends on your connection to Christ, which he works through the church. Middle of verse 18. He's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. It's describing why Jesus is supreme. And these two terms, beginning and firstborn, together describe the qualifications of Jesus to be in charge of everything. He's the beginning. He started the church. And firstborn describes the resurrection power that gave him the authority to establish and lead the church. When Microsoft was a growing company for a couple of decades, at least. Who was in charge during those days? Bill Gates. Bill Gates started it. He funded it. And so every worker in that corporation, as it grew, had to make sure that what they were doing was in line with the vision, the purpose of Bill Gates. He started it. He owned it. He funded it. Jesus Christ founded the church and he funds the church. He started it. He empowers it. He is the beginning. He launched it. And so as we meet here today, we can precisely trace our origin to Jesus Christ. Even though this particular church started, interestingly, the first Sunday January 2, actually, that year, of 1977, 43 years ago, this church began, but it was a continuation of Christ establishing the church. So while there were these, these families, human families, starting it, it was under the direction of Christ. Let's think biblically of how the church started. I just want to show you four passages, and just so you kind of understand the sequence of the beginning of Christ and his church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I'm building something that will penetrate the power of Satan in this world. It was still future when he said that. It hadn't happened yet. Matthew 28, we read Jesus Words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Something has changed. He now has authority. This is after the cross. This is after the resurrection. 
We call this the Great Commission. So Jesus said, I will build my church. And here he says, I have authority to give instructions to the church. This is what the church is to do, make disciples. But it still hasn't started yet. Move ahead, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Oh, that's what was missing. He says, you should go and make disciples, Matthew 28. But now he says, you're going to need power. So he says, I'll give you the power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay? So I'm going to give you. Has his church started yet? Still not yet. This is just before Jesus ascended to heaven. He says, I will, I will send the Spirit. But by the very next chapter of Acts, Acts 2, it says those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Something's happened because now the church has its power 3,000 and daily, and Acts goes on, there's 5,000. and So what has happened in this sequence? Let's put these four passages now on a timeline. Jesus said, I will build my church. And then he says, I have all authority to tell you what the church should do. Go and make disciples. What happened between there? The resurrection. The resurrection was the validation of his purpose in coming to redeem mankind and thus to start this new entity, the church. And the resurrection proves the validity of the entire gospel. But it still hadn't come. So he makes another promise. You will receive power when when the Holy Spirit comes. And then, sure enough, there's power and the church begins. What happened in between was the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember? What's the, what's the nature of the, of, of, the, of the church? It began at Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit. And so now we see he promised, I will build, and he had authority to give instructions what the church should do because of the resurrection. You will receive power, he promised, and indeed there was power because the Holy Spirit came. And so the church has been established. He is the beginning of the church. Key to that is that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Now, firstborn, we've just come off of Christmas, and so uh, a little bit we start to thinking of firstborn like, oh, yeah, he was, he was born. No, no, that's a different. This firstborn is, is talking about a position of, of, of primacy, that he is, he is the first and above and supreme. And so the firstborn here does not refer to the incarnation of Christmas. It refers to the resurrection. We call it Easter. It's the resurrection He's the firstborn in this sense. Jesus was the first human being to be eternally resurrected. Now, some of you are thinking back, there were other resurrections, right? Yes, there's actually 10 other individual resurrections. And then there was a whole group of people who were resurrected actually on the day Jesus was resurrected in Jerusalem. What was true about all those other resurrections? They died again. So they were resurrected indeed. It was the miraculous power of God. It was God proving his power over sin and death. But they were resurrected to another earthly body and they died again, except for Jesus. And Jesus defeated sin and death. And so his resurrection, firstborn, is the same issue as 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, just a different metaphor, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He is our guarantee that we will be resurrected. 
The miraculous but temporary resurrections of those others did not establish them as the leader or the head of any new entity or order. But when Jesus was resurrected, he was raised forever and had the authority to start something. And he started this. And so he is supreme over Open Door Bible Church. And so the reason we know as a church that we have the authority and power to be a church and to make disciples of Jesus is because he has commissioned us to do that and he will continue to use us as long as we are under his supremacy and we respond to him. He authorized us. We've got to make sure that we are personally and as a church pursuing the purposes he set forth so that in everything he might have the supremacy. End of verse 18. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verses 15 through 19 that we've been studying are uh, rightly, I think, called the high point of Colossians, laid out right at the beginning, because everything else is going to flow from the supremacy of Christ. And this is not a new point because already, if we look back to chapter 1, verse 10, we were studying some weeks ago. We saw what we were supposed to be doing when Paul prayed. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, live worthy of Christ, and may please him in every way. As you are reading through the book of Colossians, or maybe you're one of those that are going to read through the Bible this year. That's great. I hear some movement of doing that among various ones. You know, we can sometimes read so fast you miss stuff. I get that. We need to read big picture. We need to read small picture. But you could read through verse 10 and say, yeah, we should please Christ. Maybe we don't take it seriously enough until we come to verses 15 through 19 because we see the importance of pleasing him in every way because of who he is. And suddenly the choices we make every day matter because they need to be under the supremacy of Christ. And suddenly decisions and and direction of a church takes on new significance, the priorities we set because it is the command and the purposes of the one who is supreme that in everything he might have the supremacy. Why does he have the supremacy? We've already seen he's the head of the body, the firstborn, the beginning. Verse 19 For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. God was pleased to have God's full nature in the person humanly we know as Jesus. Another way of saying this is that God in all of his fullness has chosen to dwell in Christ. Jesus is nothing less than God the Father. There really is like no other more clear way in the Greek language that you could state the absolute clear deity of Jesus than to say this. Chapter 2, verse 9 is essentially saying the same thing. Maybe even more clear. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. How, how How do you deny that? In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The word deity is essentially 
descriptive of the God nature. It's a God word. God nature of Jesus. And in fact, it's a more intensive word than the word godly. Godly is an attribute or description that can describe people. Godly men, godly women. This is, this is a more intensive word. This is God in his essence, not just God as a description or adjective or attribute. Deity. Deity dwells. Some translations say lives, some say dwells. I'd say dwells is preferable. It's also an intensive word because living is more like being in a house temporarily. I could describe somebody living there for a little while or, or living there longer, but dwells is to, to come and be at home, to dwell permanently. So God in his fullness, his complete essence permanently dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see his supremacy is based on his nature as fully God. These passages confront and fly in the face of any false teaching, false religion, cult, any group, anybody that diminishes in any way the full deity of the nature of Jesus Christ is confronted and and put down by this clear passage. He is God. And that's why he must have absolute supremacy in our lives, in our church. To resist Jesus is to resist God. To fail to please Jesus is to fail to please God. And to worship Jesus is to worship God himself. Practically speaking, what does it look like to please Jesus and be under his absolute supremacy. Let's think through a couple of, I guess, logical way of thinking of it. How I submit. We started in verse 10. Please him in every way. If this doesn't resonate with us, if this is not on our heart, you don't don't even need to read the rest of Colossians. Because this is the starting point. Do we want to please the one who is supreme? And it really boils down to when we wake up in the morning and you start your coffee and you open your phone, you pass your family in the hallway, or you get to work and meet the first customer, is it already on our mind, I want to please him in every way? That mindset is the foundation of what God intended for his people. How will we know what pleases Christ? You're going to face a lot of situations on Monday. Well, that's why he's given us his word. And so later in Colossians, I like the way Paul puts it, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. He could have said the word of God, but... I think because his focus is on the supremacy of Christ in this book, he says, I'm going to call it the word of Christ because the word of Christ is the word of God. It's the same thing. And so as you sit down to look at Scripture, it's as if Christ is sitting there beside you. You are hearing what Christ wants. So if you want to please Christ, look for what he says. That's how you know. And we should teach and admonish one another. And so we we cannot simply rely on what I think, but he's given us his body, the church, so that we have a clear view of what 
he thinks. So that means we would have to follow godly leaders as well. Paul the Apostle said, follow me as I follow Christ. It's a bold and yet very clear and accurate statement. Paul knew that he was human. Paul knew that he could err. And so he said, follow me if I'm following Christ. Follow me to the extent I'm following Christ. So there are confusing messages out there, and we will hear and read and be uh, inundated with ideas that sound right, sound authoritative. So who can you follow? You can follow a human being to the extent they follow Christ. Paul had a unique authority as an apostle. He was in a window of time where there was personal and perfect revelation given to a select group of people uh, known in New Testament as the apostles because we did not have a complete New Testament. Now that we have a complete Bible, is it everyone for himself? Can we just all become the, our personal Bible interpreters? Uh, or is there something more? Well, it turns out that God still wants us to be teaching and admonishing one another. And so we have the body of Christ with leaders. Hebrews 13, your leaders who spoke the word of God. Not just leaders who spoke their opinions, but if they're speaking the word of God, imitate their faith, obey your leaders, and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. The supremacy of Christ is trickling downward as those who have to give an account, because leaders have to give an account to Christ for their leadership as well. Hebrews is... uh, though we don't know who wrote it, actually. Seems to be more of a second and third generation letter, maybe the last New Testament book written except for Revelation, because it talks about those who heard those who heard Jesus in Hebrews 2. And so what has now become normative is the fact that we have leaders in a church who are speaking the word of God who must, you must imitate their faith and, and obey and submit to them. So this becomes really our pattern Uh, for today. It is sad that many times Christians today are essentially lone rangers. And the way you recognize that is if you sense a resentment of some kind towards leadership or, or structure in a local church. Not because churches are perfect, they are not. But sometimes there are, there's an attitude of, I know what I believe, and no one can tell me what I should believe, and no one can tell me what to do. That's just basic sin nature of everybody in the world. Really nobody. Even, you work in a, in a job, and, and you're somewhere in this line, and you kind of like to do it your own way, but the paycheck depends on it, so okay, I'll do it your way. You're right in my... Instead, we have a loving Heavenly Father who has established and and saved us by His Son's sacrifice for our sin. And that authority is our authority, and we need to respond to how He leads. He established the church who established leadership. It's a grave and solemn responsibility to lead because we are all, as leaders, imperfect people. I am very grateful for our church board. We are men who are imperfect 
But I'm grateful for each of them spiritually imperfect, but spiritually qualified. As there are two clear passages that describe those. But we are responsible to speak the word and then in a humbling sense to somehow be those that are worth imitating. Follow us only to the extent that we follow Christ. But then obey and submit. What do those words evoke in you? Is there a willingness or a resistance? It's a heart check. Does this mean church leaders are always right? We know that's not true. And in the extreme, we all know, if we read the news through the years, of church leaders who turn out to be corrupt, immoral, and even abusive. And the damage to individuals and to churches is incalculable. And yet the supremacy of Christ is not diminished because we are those who have to give an account. If you have spiritual leaders who you believe are seeking godliness, seeking to please Christ and care for the spiritual best, we must function under the supremacy of Christ and work together in that way. There's one other area in which the authority of Christ also extends. It's not spoken of directly here, but it is in Colossians and elsewhere, and that is submitting to other authorities that God has ordained, home, work, government, etc. One of the examples we'll come across in the book of Colossians, for example, is uh, Colossians 3.20. Young parents love this one. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Think about that, though. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Do you see the line of authority? So a child is learning the supremacy of Christ when a child is held accountable to obey mom and dad. So cleaning the room or, or uh, uh, obeying immediately becomes means by which a child, even before they can even understand Christ, begins to understand the supremacy of Christ. Mom and dad are under Christ's authority and they're asking me to do things that are right as they're trying to please Christ and we train them to follow Christ. Government also is a reflection of Christ's supremacy. Romans 13 and a couple other passages, Roman, uh, Romans, First uh, Peter, um, Titus. If government asks us to sin or, or teaches that which is uh, falsehood or has laws that are there's a there's a point at which, and, and, and uh, Peter ran into this, Acts 4, you have to obey God rather than man. Otherwise, we are responsible to follow authority. So what does it look like to be under the supremacy of Christ? Let's try to picture it. Here's you and me. And if we are seeking to live and submit to the supremacy of Christ, we will function as part of a church and under leadership. That church and its leadership is responsible to function under the authority of Scripture. And Scripture is the Word of Christ. And so we function under this authority, or you can think of it in reverse, individually. 
Is it your desire to please Jesus Christ? If so, you'll be seeking the scripture because that's where you find out what Jesus Christ wants. And if so, you will function as part of a church family and you'll be in a a position of, of unity to accomplish the purposes of Jesus. And this also then helps us when throughout our years we will encounter these other ideas or this isn't true. So there's some questions to ask of any teacher or leader or author Are they functioning under authority of a church that is functioning under the authority of Scripture that is existing to please Christ? And we begin to get a sense of whether or not we should follow so-and-so. Are they following Christ? So that in everything, he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And, verse 20, and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So having established the supremacy of Jesus, who is God, Paul transitions to this incredible, almost unthinkable, but beautiful paradox that the one who is supreme over all things is the one who in his love has reconciled us in our sin to a God who is totally holy. Reconciled is to be at peace and no longer a conflict. To be restored to a position of harmony. All things. Generally, we think of reconciliation in its major New Testament emphasis as reconciliation between God and man, but clearly he means something even beyond that. Heaven and earth, we know from verse 16, immediate context refers to the created world, universe. So how can he, by the cross, how did Christ by the cross reconcile somehow all things? Well, sin is what has caused since Adam, a conflict between man and God. Sin is what has caused conflict between mankind. And sin is the reason why this uh, creation suffers the pangs that we discussed a couple weeks ago in Romans 8. That's That's why there are what's normally called environmental or creation problems. There are thorns. Hail wipes out crops. There are polluted streams and and air. Everything really is because of the fall. Everything that's broken is because of sin. And so, this is saying that Christ's work of redemption addresses sin in all of its impact. So first, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1, but also peace between Races. It's the, the only hope for racial recon- reconciliation is in Christ. Ephesians 2.14, Christ is the peace. He established peace, breaking down the barrier, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And I, I just love it when I get to be in, in, in diverse Christian settings and to realize it just doesn't matter. To, to fellowship with other pastors at a conference and they're, they're functioning in a different culture and they're a different color. And it's like, it's a, it becomes almost invisible because of Christ. 
And then as we discussed, knowing that even at the end of this age, there will be a redemption even of the, of the creation and God will press the refresh button and heaven and earth will be restored. The cross is the centerpiece of history. And incredibly through Christ's death, there is redemption and there is hope for everything because he's supreme over everything. And what this passage shows us, I think, as individual believers is that we will appreciate the cross and what Christ did for us most when we realize who our Savior really is. Our Savior, if you just kind of follow from verse 15 through 19, our Savior is the one who is the image of God. Our Savior created all things. He even created those spirits who rebelled and turned evil, turned evil. He, our Savior is the one who existed eternally, who sustains his creation, who is the head of the church, who is the launching point of the church. He's the one who was raised from the dead permanently so we could be. So he has to have first place in everything. And he died for us because the one who is supreme over all things actually wants to know us and be in continual and eternal relationship with us. So he did everything necessary. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross so that we could be at peace with him in spite of our sin, our regrets, places we messed up, the failures we've had, the weaknesses, the temptations all the attractions and distractions that would cause us to exclude him from our lives. In spite of all of that, he wanted to be in relationship with us so we could enjoy one another forever. And it happened through his shed blood on the cross. We're going to pray and then celebrate that very thing together. Father, we thank you for your grand plan and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your eternal thought process you created us in your image that we could know and enjoy you freely and in our freedom we would sin but in your grace you would send your son fully God but fully man to die and pay for our sin that if we by faith in your shed blood alone apart from any works or merit of our own would believe in you, we would have eternal life. Thank you for your supremacy and for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.